If you'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, we're going to pick up our study through the book of Luke. That's page 1187 on the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, Luke chapter 6. Basically, the sixth chapter of Luke is divided into two halves, and we're going to be looking at the latter portion of this chapter over the next several weeks. And this is a portion from the Sermon on the Mount that is recorded in Matthew chapter 5. Luke gives us a, a bit of a different take, a different rendition, and scholars over the years have argued about whether or not this is the same uh, sermon at the same time, and obviously I think that we'll see this morning that Jesus had one consistent message, and wherever he went, he preached the message, and it, it was the same, and he preached it multiple times, and so we will begin to look at this, but I'd like to start this morning with a word of prayer. Pray with me. Father, we come now before your word, and Lord, we pray, God, that you would give us fresh eyes to see, Lord. God, help these familiar passages to begin to speak to us, Lord, in a new and a fresh way. God, will you motivate us, Lord, to respond accordingly to what you have to say this morning? God, I pray that you would prop me up by your word, Lord, and that you would speak through me and protect me from error. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we jump in this morning, I think there's some some context, some groundwork that we need to cover. There's some things that we all need to be on the same page with before we begin to look at this passage of Scripture. Oftentimes, we all understand, especially all of us who are over... 12 years old, that life is hard and life on this earth and in this world and in this culture is difficult and it's hard. And we're all faced with struggles. You turn the TV on, you see terrible tragedies. We are always praying for one another. There's sickness and there's just accidents and there's all sorts of things that are always barraging us and that's never been any different since Genesis chapter 3. There's always been trouble. There's always been struggles. There's always been trials. There's always been injustice and pain and so on and so forth. And what happens is we allow the situation and the circumstances in which we live in to begin to sort of jade our consciousness. In other words, we begin to see... God through the lens of what we are experiencing down here. And somehow we get mixed up in exactly who God is because things are so tough here. Sometimes we get the wrong idea of who God is. So just think with me for a moment what this text, the Sermon on the Mount, really represents. Think with me for a moment that... Between the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament, when you get to the end of the Old Testament, before you, you know, for us it's just a flip of a page, but in reality that's 400 years of silence. So for 400 years, there's no word from God. There's no prophets, there's no judges, there's no healing, there's no miracles, there's nothing. People are just left alone unto themselves for 400 years. Then at the completion of that 400 years, at the perfect time that was ordained before the foundation of the world, God is on the move and He sends His Son, born of a virgin, to begin life on this earth. 
Now, I wish we had time to just talk about that for a while, but we just came through Advent season, so we know all about that. But think with me for a minute about the gravity of the moment and the question that's got to be answered of what is it that He's going to say? I mean, what is the God of all eternity going to start with? Where is He going to begin And then as he's born and he begins to live and he grows up and he's a little boy and then he's a teenager. Imagine that and perfect in every way. Amen. And then he goes on, he begins to grow up. And then one day, after 30 years of life, so now we've got all of eternity sort of just building up to this moment. But then let's just look at Jesus as an individual. We've got 30 years of life in in human form on earth for 30 years. And now He is about to unleash what has been building up inside of Him as He has sort of, in a human sense, become acquainted with life on earth, with how humans interact with each other. It's not that this is new to Him, but for us as humans, thinking about God incarnate in the flesh on earth... All of this is building up to this moment. And here's the thing. It just seems like God's going to come out. He's going to sort of break through the silence. And He's going to bring this wrath. And He's going to bring this judgment. And He's going to bring this condemnation. Or maybe He's just going to begin to crush all of His enemies. Or it's, it's everything but what we would think. In other words, this is it. When, when we read this together in a minute, this is Jesus' first sermon. And that just has astonished me for the last two weeks. I just simply cannot get over the goodness and the graciousness and the unbelievable love and compassion and kindness and of all the things we deserve and of all the things that we had done and the way humanity had progressed or digressed, if you will, for For God to say this is truly unbelievable. And what's even more unbelievable is that almost everyone in this room knows these verses by heart. And here's the thing. They just sort of roll across our lips like... Folks, these are amazing, amazing words. So let's begin to set the context. We'll start in verse 17. Luke 6, beginning in verse 17. So Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of His disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and from across the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear Him and He healed their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits. And they were healed and the whole multitude sought to touch Him. For power went out from him and healed them all. Then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and he said, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast you out. name you is evil. For the Son of Man's sake, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven. 
For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Isn't it amazing that Jesus begins by coming down off a mountain after healing and meeting all the needs of the people? And then he, he sort of launches out with blessing. Blessing. You see, what Jesus is doing is he is a, he's laying out the framework for what community in God is all about. The Sermon on the Mount is really a blueprint for what community is, for what the revolution brings, for what Christianity is all about. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And so as he begins to give us these directives, he's, he's not making suggestions. He's not merely telling us what he's hoping for, but he's laying out what community in the kingdom of God actually is. He's telling us the way the world actually operates. It's not the way we see it. It's not what we experience. It's not what we think. This, in actuality, is what it is. And so we call these the Beatitudes. And that comes from the Latin word that just means to enjoy a state of happiness or bliss. So blessings and blessedness, these Beatitudes, it is, is a blueprint for happiness and for joy. And so God begins by just establishing that, first of all, we can have Joy, we can be happy, we can be blessed, which should come as a surprise to some people and certainly must have come as a surprise to these people. And certainly if you spend much time outside of these walls, you know that true joy and happiness is rare today. It's hard to come by. And the Lord begins by just saying, blessing, blessing can be yours. You see, the New Testament, think, think about this. It's so practical. It, the New Testament comes and announces the good news of the gospel. In other words, this is good news. We say the gospel. We want the gospel. But we need to remember that it is good news. And good news doesn't make sane people miserable. Good news doesn't make sane people miserable. In other words, you don't have to be miserable. That's what Jesus is saying. But yet we, we walk around and we see people in misery and in anguish. And certainly many times they have good reason to be. And there's, in other words, the Beatitudes as you're going to see this morning do not they don't contradict the harsh reality in which we live. This isn't some sort of make-believe, you know, land where everything is simple and gracious and glorious. The Bible acknowledges the trouble and the trial that we face today. But you can be blessed and joyful and find comfort and peace. 
And so after four years of silence, 400 years of silence, what we find is that Jesus comes and announces, well, yours can be the kingdom of God. And you can be filled. These, these are unbelievable, uh, these are unbelievable statements that your reward is great in heaven. You see, because blessedness is an attribute. It's, it's part of the nature of God. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 68, the Bible says, Oh God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel, it is He who gives strength and power to His people. Blessed be God. It's part of who God is. Psalm 72 says, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. That's all He does. It's part of who He is. As fire is hot, God is blessed. That's the nature of who He is. And because blessedness is fundamentally, it's part of, it's an element, it's part of the character of who the nature of God is and who He is as a person, then when we partake of His nature through Jesus Christ, receive the Holy Spirit of God, then we partake in His blessedness, meaning that you and I as believers, when we are saved, it becomes possible for possible for you and me to live and exist in blessedness in spite of any circumstances which may come about in our lives. You see, that's the unbelievable thing that's going on here, that, that Jesus is announcing that there is going to be a, there is a way, there are a people who have something that no one else on earth has, that there's no other way to receive. This is a brand new revolutionary concept that life can utterly and completely fall apart around us and saved people always have access to the blessedness of God. You see, I didn't say that saved people were always going to have an easy life. You can buy that book with the other 40 million people who wasted their money, but that's wrong. The truth is, is that blessed people or saved people have access to the blessedness of God regardless of how terrible life may become. That's the Beatitudes. That's the blessing. And so Jesus begins with this first word of blessing. And every time He teaches, every time He, he opens His mouth, the, the Bible always, the people around Him respond with with this one who teaches with such authority and, and because what he says is so different than the natural experience of life. It, it's so counter-cultural. And so he doesn't make suggestions. He doesn't tell us what he hopes to be true. When he says, blessed are the poor, he's not saying, so maybe you ought to think about being poor. He's saying, this is the way the world actually operates. This is the way the kingdom of God functions. And you can wrestle against this. You can fight against this all you want, but it won't change anything. I mean, you can hate gravity all you want, but you jump off something high, you lose. That's what this is. This is the way things operate. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, the weeping, and the hated. Now, if you're like me, you just think, well, really? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It seems to me, because it seems like I live in a world where everyone's clamoring to be rich and full and, and to laugh. 
and to get people to like them and speak well of them. See, Jesus comes along and He takes the American dream and sort of flips it on its head and makes it the American nightmare. And so let's look together at these passages of Scripture. Verse 20. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And here in Luke, we have these blessings versus woe. So if you look at verse 24, you see, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. In other words, there's, there's the two contrary sides to each of these beatitudes. Now, the question here, first of all, especially in regards to this first beatitude about the poor, the question that always comes up, the question that always uh, fascinates me to watch false teachers wrestle through is, is this passage of Scripture talking about physical poverty or spiritual poverty? And that always depends on the context in which the false teacher is teaching. The answer is yes. It's talking about physical and spiritual. It's talking about both. For example, Jesus, when he announces at Nazareth the, the, what is going to be the center of his ministry, he says in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, we'll just stay in the book of Luke. He says, the spirit of, Lord, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. That's what Jesus said. Well, maybe Jesus just hates rich people. Maybe if you're rich, Jesus has a problem with you. Well, you also have a problem in the book of Luke with that position. Because in Luke chapter 8, verse 3, we find the Bible says that Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod Stewart, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. In other words, these rich ladies were giving to Jesus, were helping Jesus, were part of what he was doing. And he was, it was he not buried in a rich man's tomb? Amen. What about spending uh, three years of his life discipling Matthew, the tax collector? Amen. So therefore, Jesus doesn't have a problem with rich people. Jesus definitely has a heart for the poor. So he's talking about both of these physical and spiritual dynamics at the same time. The best place to really see this illustrated is in Luke chapter 18, the very familiar discourse where Jesus encounters the rich young ruler. Let me just read some of that to you. In Luke 18, verse 18, it begins, Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good teacher? And Jesus begins to go through. You need to keep the commandments. You need to follow the things that you know you're supposed to do. Verse 21, and he said, well, all of these things I've already done. I've kept them since I was a young man. So now we have this problem. Jesus, then Jesus heard these things and he said to him, well, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you have treasure in heaven. Now you come and follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. Now, the question you have to ask yourself at this moment in this discourse is, is Jesus saying that you have to give away everything that you have in order to be in the kingdom? Because the question that started this whole thing was, what do I have to do to receive eternal life? And now Jesus is telling this very rich and prosperous man, you have to give all of your stuff away in order to follow me. And so is this some sort of command to us that that's what we need to do? Let's read on. Verse 24. Jesus saw that the man became very sorrowful. So he said, well, how hard is it 
for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who are standing around, or you and me sort of reading through this for maybe the first time, think to ourselves, well, then who can be saved? Verse 27. And Jesus said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And the very next chapter records Jesus leading Zacchaeus, this very wealthy chief tax collector, to himself. Now, what does this teach us about Jesus? Well, first of all, it teaches us that you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven when you value or prize something above the Lord. That you cannot come to Christ and say, I want you to be my Savior and not be my Lord. You see, because this man wanted eternal life, but he wanted to keep all of his possessions more than he wanted eternal life. And if you want something else more than you want eternal life, then you are disqualified from receiving eternal life. Now, the other thing that we have to see here is that Jesus didn't say, take all your possessions, make a bonfire and roast marshmallows. Did he? No. He said, take what you have and give it to those who are in need. Jesus always worked in the physical and the spiritual at the same time. And so when the Bible says, blessed are the poor... We make a huge mistake when we over-spiritualize that and turn that into, yes, it is poor in spirit, as Matthew says, but it is not only poor in spirit. That the consistent teaching of Scripture is, as Jonathan Edwards says, there is no more clear doctrine or command of the New Testament that every believer should be involved in giving to the poor. Boy, we just get quiet. That's what it says. Don't you wish it was just a spiritual thing? Because, you know, it just seems that way. That we, we, we just immediately want to retreat from this passage because we have so much. We have so much and we just think... But you know what? Those who have much, much is required. And so as you're sitting there watching the video of those orphans, man, that's good. That's good. You know, and you look around, you see people in this church living the mission. You see people serving those who can't serve themselves. I mean, I am so thankful. Trust me, I am so very thankful that I am part of a body of Christ that is doing the Beatitudes and not just reading them and trying to avoid them. But the hard truth is for all of us in here. And so maybe if your heart is on the fence, you need to know that God has commanded every believer to be involved in the lives of the needy. All of us. That never gets much of an amen. You know what? If you're not today, okay. You got tomorrow. Get moving. Get started. We all have more than we need. God didn't give it to us for our luxury. I don't want to be found with barns filled and storehouses filled and people perishing around me. So let's talk about this spiritual poverty. 
You know, I got the privilege to sit last night and listen to the mission team talk about their experiences uh, with the orphans in the orphanage in Moldova and, and, uh, and their journey there and their journey back. And, and I was thinking about this passage of Scripture. Obviously, this is all I've been thinking about for so long. And, and as I was listening to them, th- this is what dawned on me. And it's not as if I haven't lived this time and time again every time I go to Brazil or go on a mission trip or serve the poor somewhere. But poverty brings clarity. You see, when you get around poor people, they're not distracted like we are. When you got nothing... You're different. And here's what we do. We all do this. We get around real poverty. You go on a mission trip somewhere for the first time and you get around people who truly do not have and aren't sure they're going to have food to eat tomorrow. And they're believers and you will undoubtedly, 100% of the time, be astonished by their Christianity. You'll be astonished by their level of devotion and their love for the Lord and their commitment to praying and fasting and and reading God's Word. Why? Because that's all they've got. See, our problem is we got everything we need. And so it takes some guy like me to yell and scream and spit and turn red every Sunday to try to get us to do something. Because our houses are full of food. We just flip a switch and get comfortable. When we need gas, we just pump it and swipe the card. I mean, we're there. We don't even need money to buy stuff. How sick is that? That's next week. Anyway, here we go. So spiritual poverty, poor in spirit means that all of your religious strivings, all of your good deeds, all of your academic accomplishments, all of your positions of prestige and power, all the accomplishments that you have been recognized for, they amount to nothing in spiritual poverty. means that when you come before the Lord to be spiritually poor, you realize you are bankrupt. You don't come to God with some good things. You don't come to God and say, Lord, will you save me? I was a Boy Scout once and I did help some ladies across the street. No. You come to God with zero. Everything you've ever done doesn't matter. It's not that you're bringing things to God and He's going to use those and build them into your salvation. No. Everything that you've done and I've done apart from Him is worthless in spiritual poverty. See, blessed are those who recognize apart from Him, we're zeros. That's what the beatitude... That's what Jesus is announcing to the world. Stop trying to earn your way. Isn't it interesting that almost every single false religion and doctrine is centered around works and the first words out of Jesus' mouth in His first sermon is, don't work for it. Don't strive for it. No. You got to be bankrupt. You got to come empty and pathetic and pitiful and realize my way can't work, won't work, never had a chance to work. I'm a fool for everything I tried. For 25 years of my life, I tried to do it my way. It was all a failure. That's what this bankrupt spiritual Poorness is. It brings amazing clarity. That's one of the reasons why. For all of us in the room who are children of God, we have such sweet, fond memories of our salvation experience. 
You ever thought about that? It's because we were bankrupt. And the riches of heaven were unloaded into our account at one moment. And so we look, we think back, look back on those days and our heart just fills with joy and gratitude and thankfulness. Now I want to be very practical. That's my intention here today. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a little spiritual poverty test. We're going to go fast. We've got a lot to cover, but I want you to just take this test real quick. Don't tell the, uh, the answers to the people next to you. No cheating. You're in church. Amen. Here we go. Number one, it's, it's yes or no. Real simple. Maybe doesn't count. There's no box for that. So you just have to yes or no in your heart, in your mind. Here you go. Number one, spiritual poorness test. All right. I am not the most important thing in my life. The answer needs to be yes in spiritual poverty. Paul says for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Just a simple way of saying, I really don't matter in this whole thing. It's all about God. Question number two. I am lost in the wonder and majesty of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, that every day, every moment, as a believer, there are these times where I'm just overwhelmed by the goodness and the majesty of God. That keeps me in a state of spiritual poverty. That keeps me in a state of blessedness. God, you're amazing. You're so good. Question number three. I don't complain about my situation, but instead I try to use it for God's glory. See, we do a lot of complaining that's sin. As if God somehow forgot us or lost track of us or, you know, there's a mistake. Oh, this couldn't be right. God, you, you, what happened? And so we begin to complain and fret. No, that situation, that circumstance is an opportunity for the glory of God. Peter says this, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. It doesn't get much clearer than that, now does it? If anyone suffers as a Christian, not not as a lost person, not as an unbeliever, not as a pagan, as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. In what matter? Whatever matter is causing you to suffer. That's spiritual poverty. Question number four. I have the heart of a servant. It really is just that simple. My heart longs to serve people. I find that I am most rewarded and most filled with joy and most satisfied when I'm serving other people. Number five, I'm a person of prayer. You cannot. Just practical here. I mean, I'm not breaking any academic ground here. You can't be a spiritual beggar without begging. You got to be a person of prayer. You just have to. There's no way around it. James says the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. In other words, don't discount begging. It goes a long way in spiritual poverty. Number six, I am a dispenser of the grace of God. Meaning, what I've received from God flows through me and into other people. The poor in spirit are always marked. By a lifestyle of grace and gratitude. The Bible says, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, he said, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Those were poured out for us to pour into others. Now, that is a hard test. I will admit, that's a tough list. 
And maybe somebody in here this morning is saying, you know, I just don't know. I don't know if it's worth trying to accomplish those six things. Well, I would just draw your attention to the second half of the beatitude for theirs is the kingdom. If that's not good enough for you, you've got a real problem. In other words, let me put it to you this way. You may come to God broken hearted, but this beatitude assures us that you won't leave that way. For yours is the kingdom. Let's look at verse 21. Jesus goes on. He says, blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. And then the woe in verse 25 says, woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Now, why does Jesus use the term hunger? Because to me, it seems like as you begin to think this through theologically, it seems to, to me that maybe the word want or the word desire, maybe you should, you should hunger or maybe you should want or desire or long for rather than hunger. Because sometimes hunger doesn't seem like it's always a positive thing to you and me. Sometimes we want to hunger less or sometimes we ought to hunger less. Well, the reason he uses the word hunger must be because it is impossible for us to live physically without food and water in the same way it is impossible for us to live spiritually without righteousness. That's why it's hunger and thirst for righteousness as recorded in Matthew. In other words, this hunger is centered around this issue of righteousness. A starving person has one thing on their mind. Food. Water. They're not thinking about what the score of the game was because they're starving. They don't care about, you know, what the stock market's doing. They're starving. You see, it brings clarity. It brings... You suddenly begin to see things in a very narrow way when you are starving. And so they'll do anything to get it. Whatever's necessary to get satisfied. But nothing can satisfy this hunger except for the Lord, except for righteousness. And so, blessed are you when you hunger for righteousness, when you hunger for what you were designed to be hungry for. And if you hunger for this, you'll be filled. In other words, you won't be, you know, you won't get some. The the beatitude doesn't say the hungry will get. It says the hungry will be filled. In other words, total satisfaction. Our job is to seek. His job is to satisfy. That's how this interaction goes. The more something satisfies, the more we want. See how that works? You know that in your own life. I know that in my own life. The Bible knows that because it's true. Psalm 107 says this, For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Jeremiah 31 records, I will satisfy, the Lord says, the priest with abundance and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. There's this correlation between being satisfied and a desire for more satisfaction. And when you are satisfied by the right thing, you become hungry for more. But you see... This is an exclusive invitation. This isn't an, an open calling for anyone who seems to have a taste for anything and they're going to get what they want. Not everyone can be filled. Only those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are ever filled. You see, if you're not, 
as the Beatitudes will continue to teach us as we go through these, if you're not, if you're trying to feed yourself with the wrong thing, you find yourself spiraling out of control as you're clamoring for things to satisfy this hunger in your soul. Watch how this works. Verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. In other words, we begin to see that there's a difference here between repentance and regret. In other words, think about how everyone has regrets. Amen? Now, people who have no concept of God have regrets. But think about what they regret. They regret many times things that don't matter eternally. They just regret things because it made them uncomfortable or because they lost money on a deal or because they were inconvenienced. And so they regret things. Regret is not repentance. Repentance is when you regret the things that you've done against the Lord. You see, it narrows the field. Repentance is when you come before God recognizing that there are things that you and me regret that have been an affront to a holy and a loving God. And so you see there's this There's this dichotomy between weeping and laughing. And yes, this is a lesson on finding happiness in the midst of sorrow. And it it doesn't exactly seem to fit into the context of what I experience every day or you experience every day until you really begin to understand that the way to blessing always comes through the pathway of sorrow. In other words, the joy of the Lord is always discovered on the road marked with suffering. Now, these Beatitudes are progressive. In other words, you start with spiritual poverty. And you begin to move through. You don't start with weeping versus laughing. And and it makes sense when you think about this because... People don't mourn for no reason. At least sane people don't. Right? In other words, we mourn when we have a reason, when something happens. And this type of mourning that the Lord is calling us to comes from being poor in spirit, from recognizing who we are before God and the mess we've made of our life, and then hungering for something that we do not have. You don't hunger for something you have. A man with a warehouse full of Twinkies is not sitting in his living room desiring a cream-filled sponge. Right? Although that sounds kind of tasty right now. Right? You don't hunger for what you have. You hunger for what you don't have. And so the the simple way to see this is that you mourn recognizing your spiritual poverty and your hunger and desire for what you don't have. But what you now know is available. And so you begin to mourn for this. It's woe to you who laugh now. Now, why that? Why woe to us who laugh now? Isn't laughing and joy is a good thing? I mean, is Jesus against happiness here? This is not so much about not laughing and that we shouldn't laugh as it is about our lack of mourning over the things we ought to mourn over. In other words, for example, in Isaiah 22, verse 12, the Bible says that in that day the Lord of hosts called for weeping and mourning. 
for baldness and for girding with sackcloth. But instead, there was joy and gladness, the slaying of oxen and the killing of sheep, the eating of meat and the drinking of wine. So let us just eat and drink and tomorrow we shall die. You see, we, we laugh at, at, at the world's crude and immoral jokes. We're entertained by things that are an affront to God. We, we allow things to intrigue us that we know are wrong and will lead us down the wrong road. And we find ourselves sort of laughing away all the tragedies that are around us. And the question that Scripture is going to ask us is, is that the wise thing to do? In other words, what does that say about us? Proverbs 2 explains this when it says that when wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you, understanding will keep you, to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, the jokes in the hallway around the water cooler at work, from those who leave the path of uprightness, so those who were once on the path of righteousness, who now have left and we become entertained by that, and walk in the ways of darkness and rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked, that's not funny to God. In other words, that's not something we should be laughing about. And so there's these obstacles to being a godly mourner. And real quickly, I just want to go through these. Number one, it's when we love sin. It's simply the love of sin. Choosing to hold on to the things that are sinful and wrong and we don't want to let go of them, but somehow we want to try to pretend along the way and we find ourselves laughing when we ought to be weeping and mourning. Despair. If, if the Beatitudes say anything like a megaphone of hope to you this morning, it's that you should not ever, as a child of God, be in a position of utter despair. That God is always there. Jeremiah speaking to people filled with despair. He says, they will say, it is hopeless. We will continue with our own plans. Each of us will follow the stubbornness of his evil heart. You know what? God is ever present and always able. And his love is never ending. And you and me as children of God cannot allow ourselves to become in the flesh consumed with despair. That is an obstacle to godly mourning. There's the masquerade where we pretend that we just simply don't have sin. We just walk around like we've got it all together. We know all the answers and it's simply not true. And the last one is we procrastinate. We come up with some lame excuse that somehow through all of this, we're going to get ourselves together. We're going to clean ourselves up. We're going to get good enough to be able to be part of the kingdom of God. And we fail. So listen to me. The myth says that the reason most of us face persecution is because we live in America. The truth is the reason most of us face no persecution is because our lives are not righteous. That's why we're not persecuted. And so the end of this passage, it talks about we ought not be loved by the world. We ought to be hated. It's because when we live right, we send a message to the world that you are wrong. And if something is true, other things must be false. And so if you live according to truth, you're going to make other people who live according to falsehood mad. And there's no real way around that. But here's the good news. The Beatitudes say it's okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to stay there. You can come here broken this morning. And that's totally fine and acceptable. That God is speaking to a people who are very well acquainted with brokenness. And He says, blessed are you. See, God doesn't have a problem this morning with the brokenness in this room. 
God has a solution. The problem is when we stay broken. God is a God of solution, of healing, of comfort, of touch. Listen, this God doesn't come with wrath and condemnation. He comes with blessing and with hope. He comes to tell us that ours is the kingdom, that great is our reward, that we will be filled. He's telling us the way the universe is designed to operate. This is the way it is. And when we begin to operate within His economy, this is what we experience. This is not some hope or some, we're waiting until we get to heaven. We're waiting to get to heaven when we fully, 100% live it and acknowledge it and breathe it in every day. But you know what we get today? We get the power of God available to you and me today. So I don't know what the hurdle is this morning. But I know there's many. I know there's heroes in here who are battling through unbelievable circumstances, who are loving people through unbelievable pain and suffering. And you have a smile upon your face that's not some fake, put-on, made-up thing that's trying to convince everyone it's okay. It's because the Beatitudes have become a reality in your heart. So here's my challenge. Can we press in to these Beatitudes? Can we press in to what God has called us to be as a community of faith and begin to live this out in our daily lives? If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, if you're not part of a family of God, why are you going to stay where you are? The Lord comes down off the mountain after healing and proving His love and devotion to all the people and then He begins to speak blessing. He spoke blessing upon you today. This is the life that is possible in Christ for you today. Would you stand and bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, we come before You, Lord. And we thank You, God, for the good news of the Gospel. Father, there are some in here this morning who... Lord, need to repent for their misery, God, and for their grouchiness and for their anger and for their negativity, Father. As they see, Lord, that your clear pathway in the kingdom of God to blissfulness, Lord. Father, some of us here just needed to be encouraged this morning. We needed to be reminded of the awesome and kind, wonderful Savior that you are. And Lord, just reflect back on that moment in time where we were completely bankrupt and poor before you and you reached down and you deposited the riches of heaven into the account of our lives, Lord. We thank you for that, God. And Lord, for those who are here this morning who are apart from you, God, I pray in your name and through your power that your, God, that your courage And that your conviction would just come over the hearts of the lost and you draw them unto yourself. That today would be the day that the revolution would become real in their heart. So we thank you for what you're going to do, Lord. We thank you as we step out in faith and trust you that you would accomplish in this time what only you can do in Jesus' name.